Mark chapter 4. If you are a student of chapter content at all, or you've been reading ahead in Mark's gospel, you know that the song we just read goes perfectly with the text we're about to explore. I ask you to open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We'll be reading in a moment from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And beginning in Mark 34, verse 35, there is this extraordinary study of the person and work of Jesus Christ recorded by Mark. And we'll begin by reading that text. And the title of our message is really just simply... The storm, because that's exactly what we just sang about, and that's exactly what we're going to read about. Mark chapter 4, picking up our reading in verse 35, and uh, if you're, as we're about to read, you should understand that we just sung this, uh, but now we'll read this, beginning in verse 35. It says this, And the same day, when the even was passed over and come, he said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they, this is speaking of the disciples, had sent away the multitudes, and took him, even as he was in the ship. There was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat upon the ship, so it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Friend, did you know Christ, Jesus Christ, is Lord of the storm? He sovereignly determines which of his disciples will be sent into the storm. He sovereignly determines precisely when his disciples will enter that storm. He providentially brings the storm that he brings to his disciples. He wisely uses the storms in the lives of his disciples for his glory and their good. He powerfully controls the storm. He precisely ordains the duration of the storm in his perfect timing. All of the stages of the storm and all of the parts of the storm are under his supreme authority. Christ has eternal purposes for his disciples. And in the storms that are blown into their lives, you need to know that God is in control. Sometimes he uses the storms to discipline us. Sometimes he uses the storms to bring other people to faith in himself. Sometimes he uses the storm to build us up so that we are stronger after the storm than we were when we first entered the storm. But most of all, he uses the storm to test us, to mold us, to make us more like himself. And God intentionally puts us into storms that are far beyond our control. He deliberately puts us into storms in which we find ourselves in the deep, over our head, flat on our backs, so that we have only one place to look, and that is up. And the storms reveal in a moment and in an instant where our faith is and where our focus is and where our trust is and where our priorities are. In a moment, storms reveal if we are living what we are learning. Now this is precisely what we are finding in Mark chapter 4. Because if you've been journeying with us, we know, and this is the most duh comment in the whole sermon, I trust, 
that Mark 4 is preceded by Marks 1, 2, and 3. Did you know that? I hope you knew that. And in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, we come to discover that the disciples have been sitting under the exposition of the greatest teacher ever to live, Jesus Christ himself. And as they have been sitting under the teaching of the parables of Christ, under the clear exposition of Jesus their Lord and our Lord, there is one question that now must be answered. Will the disciples live the truth that they have been instructed in? You see, it's not enough to know the truth. One must grow in the truth. It's not enough to learn. We must live. And this is purposely the purpose of the storm that they encounter here. The storm exists that they might directly behold Christ's sovereign lordship and supreme authority over all aspects of their lives as they move and minister in his name as part of, we could say, his team. The disciples of Christ must know that heaven and hell and earth and everything is under the sovereign rule of this Jesus. The disciples must also have their faith strengthened. They must have their focus be singularly upon Jesus Christ. They must have their faithfulness be tried to be sure that it is steadfast. This is the purpose of the storm. This is what our Lord is doing in their lives. And by, by the way, this is the, what the Lord does in the lives of any of his disciples that have gone through or are in a storm. God is still sending out disciples into the night, into the deep, into the storm, that we might find ourselves in situations that in a moment well, we will discover they are beyond our control. And it is only when the water is over our heads that our faith will be revealed for what it is. Our faith is not revealed when we are under the teaching of the word. Our faith is revealed when we are in the storm and we need to respond by faith in that storm. Now as we look at this miracle in Mark 4, it is the first of four consecutive miracles that Mark will record for us. If you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark, you've noted that there have just been four consecutive parables that Mark records for us. And now, beginning here in these verses we just read, there will be four consecutive miracles. And Mark puts these miracles on the heels of Christ's parables to give us a point that we dare not miss. And the point is that Jesus has authority. And in these miracles, he will show us the clear authority of Jesus. We'll see that Jesus has authority over storms in the passage we'll exegete this morning. Next week, we'll see that Jesus has authority over Satan and his demons in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. In chapter 5, verses 21 through 25, we see Jesus' authority over sickness. And in chapter 5, verses 35 through 43, we see Jesus has even authority over death. Now, Mark has intentionally clustered these together to remind his readers of his gospel of the unrivaled, unhindered, sovereign authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see that the unrivaled, unhindered, sovereign authority of Jesus is authoritative over the storms of life. Every difficulty we shall ever face is under the controlling power of Christ. So today we look at the first of these four miracles, and we see the calming of the storm. 
And this kicks off the series of miracles that show Christ's power, but this first miracle, we could say, may hit closest to home. Because who among us haven't been in a storm? And here we see, first of all, Christ our servant. Number one, Christ our servant. And this passage begins with a bit of a strategic withdrawal of our Lord. Know how verse 35 begins. In verse 35 it says, on that day. This is the same day that Jesus gave the parables. In fact, this miracle comes at the end of a very long and busy day for our Lord. The entirety of chapter 4 has been preceded or on this same day, chapter 3 rather, In fact, this day may extend back into chapter 3, verse 20, when it says, the multitude came together again. This is a long day. This day would have thus included all the confrontations with the Pharisees, and they're calling him demon-possessed. This same day would have included him getting into the boat, because the crowds were so pressed upon him. This is the same day when Jesus would have given all of these parables to the crowds and then to be explained to his disciples. This has been one full, exhausting, demanding day. And what is being emphasized by Mark by saying this is the servanthood of Christ. The gospel of Mark is written to present the humility and servanthood of Jesus Christ. Servants give tireless effort. And we see Jesus here in ministry working hard, very hard. He has been teaching. He has been preaching. He has been rebuking. He has been exhorting. He has been explaining. He has been interpreting. He has been evangelizing. He has gone even this day without eating any food. You'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 20. It says, And the multitude came together, again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. So he's been doing all of this without nourishment. I think it's unreasonable to assume that this is not an unusual day as compared to the other days as far as our Lord's workload. Most of his days were just like this day. Jesus was busy and full of work to the brim. He found himself at the maximum. When he entered his public ministry, it's not as though he eased himself into it. It was 100% from day one. Our Lord has virtually emptied himself this day in serving others. In fact, in verse 35, it says, On that day when evening was come, Evening refers most probably to that time went from sundown until total darkness. So this is that time when it's beginning to get dusk outside. Evening has come. And here's what happens when evening had come. He said unto him, referring to his disciples, let us pass over unto the other side. Everything that Jesus did, friend, and everything that Jesus does is intentional, purposeful, and strategic. As Jesus says this, They are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And he is asking them to pass over to the east side. This sea is really more like a lake. It is about 13 miles from top long, from top to bottom. It is about 8 miles wide from east to west. 
So this journey from the west side of the sea to the east side of the sea would be no more than maybe six to eight miles. And no doubt, though not directly stated, Jesus needed a brief break from the heavy demands of ministry that had been pulling at him from every literal direction. Jesus is drained. He needed a parenthesis. He has emptied himself of virtually all he can give within his humanity. In fact, we notice that in verse 36 when it says, when they sent them away, they took him over as he was in the ship. Some have asked, when did he fall asleep? Apparently there. I mean, he's already exhausted right there. And when they had sent the multitude away, it is Jesus' intent at this moment to leave that crowd for it has been a concentrated time of ministry. He has poured himself out literally from sunrise to sunset. And notice the word and is used again. Mark loves that word and. It's tying all of these connective stories together as he goes from the west side to the east side. But the the west side of the Sea of Galilee, that's where the large cities were. That's where the crowds were. The east side of the city of Galilee was far less populated. So their intention is to leave this massive crowd to go to a very remote location, not to give away what we'll look at next week, just to minister to one person. Pretty significant there. So their intention is to leave the massive crowd, to go to this remote location, but what does the crowd do? Look what it says in verse 36. They took him, if he even is in the ship, it's an indication that the disciples had to take him into the boat, as he is so weary and exhausted he can hardly even move. But notice what it says, and other boats were with him. Even in his effort to get away, he still couldn't get away. In fact, in his attempt to withdraw from the demands of the crowd, the crowd found new ways to still follow him. I love church history. I love American church history. It reminds me of American church history accounts of George Whitfield. It is said that when Whitfield left preaching in Philadelphia, he got on a horse and headed from Philadelphia for New York by way of New Jersey. And church history accounts in America say that some 1,000 men hopped on horses just to follow Whitfield to the next town to hear him preach some more, not knowing where Whitfield was going because Whitfield didn't yet know where he was going. That's kind of like what's going on here. All these people are just all over Christ and they want to hear more and more. And I bring this up at the outset of the storm, because we dare not miss this point. Christ loves people. Christ pours himself out for people. And Mark writes to tell us that Jesus comes as a servant. He is literally pouring himself out, exhausting himself for people, and just, just for a moment, read ahead in chapter 5, glance down there and you'll see the exhausted Christ gets into a boat, the sovereign Lord knows a storm is coming just so he can go and minister to a demonically possessed man, one man. Christ loves people, Christ loves individual people. Here is our exhausted Lord, and he is there because he has already worked harder than anyone else in that boat. 
You might ask, why is Christ asleep? He deserved a nap. (laughs) Here is the humanity of Christ. Not only is he fully God, but he is also fully man. And our Lord has been so fully exhausted, he has emptied himself completely, that he sleeps through the storm. Some of you slept through the most recent hurricane that passed over our roofs. I am in that midst. I'm not waking up for that stuff. I'm just conked out, right? Only here do we see our Savior sleeping, by the way. Only here, in all of the accounts of Christ. It's because we see him at the end of this day serving. But this is not a mere withdrawal. Again, nothing Christ does is by accident. Christ is leading his disciples into the Sea of Galilee to face something that would have a profound impact on their faith. Because every difficulty we ever face is under the sovereign power of Jesus, our servant Lord. And storms reveal if we are living what we are learning. And as they are, you and I never really know what awaits us as the Lord leads us, do we? But what we learn, number two, is that Christ is our stability. It's amazing how suddenly life can change. We go from Christ, our servant, to needing to lead, lean on Christ as our only stability. The still night is about to be something far, something far different that will jerk the rug out from underneath where they stand. And we read this in verse 37, and they arose, there arose rather. The idea is that something suddenly happened. There arose immediately. Unexpectedly, in the darkness of the night, something shook the boat. There arose a fierce gale of wind. The New King James identifies it as a great windstorm. This quiet journey in the sailboat is suddenly interrupted. This storm is of virtually hurricane proportions. And how quickly life can change, right? From a starlit night to an angry, raging storm in an instant. Just when they thought they were withdrawing to some peace and quiet, a storm hits. Now we need to know something of the storms on the Sea of Galilee to really appreciate what the disciples were experiencing here. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level and not by some small amount. It is almost 700 feet below sea level. And as the wind begins to blow from the east and away from the Mediterranean Sea, it begins to build up speed. And as it approaches the Sea of Galilee, it just immediately drops down to the Sea of Galilee 700 feet. And the sea's location makes it subject to sudden and violent storms. And as the wind comes over the eastern mountains and drops suddenly into the sea, storms are especially likely when the east wind blows cool air over the warm air that covers the sea, and it brushes up powerful wind. And the the cold air, being heavier, drops as the warm air rises, and this sudden change in the temperatures can produce surprisingly furious storms in quick, short amounts of time. This still happens 
in the Sea of Galilee. There are a few ravines along the edge that act like wind tunnels as well, as you can see them on the map. And when the wind hits these ravines, the wind actually greatly intensifies almost in direct currents. Some liken it to a hurricane with tornado winds. That's what it's like. So you could be on this small Sea of Galilee on one side and you're going to feel it, but then you could be in the middle and you could almost have it be pinpointed like it's just coming right at your boat. That's the kind of storms. Some say it's the world's worst weather. I'm from New Hampshire. We have a mountain that they like to say is the world's worst weather, Mount Washington. There's a whole book about it, all these weird things that happen, but apparently the Sea of Galilee is just like that. And this storm is coming with earth-shaking power. For a boat to capsize in this storm didn't just mean shipwrecked, it guarantees death. And it says there arose a great storm, verse 37, and the waves beat upon the ship so it was now full. The waves are so high that they are sweeping over the hull of the boat so that the boat is now beginning to fill with water. The boat is literally ready to go down and be submerged. It's either going to sink or tip over, but they're going down. And the imperfect tense that's used here indicates that the waves are pounding and pounding and pounding against the boat. And it also indicates that they're coming from all directions, if you can even imagine such a storm. And suddenly, without warning, this storm hits their lives, just like it will hit your life. None of Christ's disciples are exempt from storms. If you are a true believer, you will face storms. You may face storms of defeat. You may face storms of devastation. You may face storms of difficulty. You may face storms of disappointment. Jesus has never promised us that it will be smooth sailing to the other side. He has purposed to lead us intentionally and purposefully into the raging storms. And these storms of his own choice and his own making can be done to test our faith. And our faith must be tested. After all, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's not enough to hear the teaching of the parables. It's not enough to know the truth. There must be an engrafting of that truth into your soul. It is never really where our heart is until in that moment, in that instant, in that storm, that we realize where our faith is. And every difficulty and every trial you will ever face is under the sovereign power of Christ to push you to His and only His stability. Talk about a story with great contrast. (laughs) Amid the raging storm and the panicked disciples, we see the sleeping Savior. And the one who's asleep, number three, is our strength. Christ is our strength. There was no easy road for the Lord. In every storm he would send his disciples into, 
he would be in the boat with them. He was in the hinder part of the boat, asleep on a pillow. Jesus is not sleeping there because he's aloof. Jesus is there because he's exhausted, as we've already noted. But then we read in the middle of verse 38, and they awake him. They awoke him. The storm could not wake him up. That's how exhausted he is. But the urgency of the voices of the disciples certainly did. And they said unto him, Master. The King James says Master. A better translation of the word would be Teacher. Teacher. Which highlights exactly what the storm is meant to teach them. They have sat under the feet of this teacher. And now... It's like a good science class teacher, right? They might spend Monday through Thursday teaching all about these elements, but on Friday we get to do a fun science class experiment, right? And here he is. He has taught them all of this, and here's an experiment they probably didn't want necessarily, like the one, the, the, the junior high girl who didn't want to do the dissection of that frog, but you're going to have to do it anyway to pass this class. Here they are in the storm, and they say, Teacher, their minds are so filled with gospel truth and doctrinal truth that even in their frantic panic, they still recognize he's the one who knows the truth. He's the teacher. And they ask. Because any and every storm, Jesus would send his disciples. He is in that boat. He is right there with them. And they ask. Carest thou not that we perish? But there's a certain irony about this situation and who's asking the question. Many of them, as you already know, are fishermen. These are experienced fishermen that are now waking up a carpenter. (laughs) And they're asking, what do we do? Now, from their perspective, the Lord is indifferent. The Lord is not in control. The Lord is asleep at the switch. And sometimes we feel that way about our Lord, don't we? When we offer our prayers and they are not immediately answered, we think he's sleeping. When we look around and we see the raging storm, we think he's just not paying attention. When we look up and there seems to be silence, we think we're ignored. And sometimes immature believers will say, the Lord doesn't love me. Or the Lord doesn't care for me. And this story is really the story of two storms, then. There's the storm of the sea, and there's the storm of the heart. And the storm of the sea is really the lesser of the two storms. There's an even greater raging storm within the hearts of the disciples as they panic under this excruciating situation. And let me tell you, They have forgotten something that you and I must learn, that Christ is our strength. They have forgotten that the Lord was the one who told them to go to the other side. If the Lord had promised they would go to the other side, then come hell or high water, no pun intended, they are going to get there. They might get wet, they might be shaking, they might be terrified, But the Lord has promised that they're going to get there, just not that it's going to be an easy trip. And he has only guaranteed a certain arrival, not that it'll be peaceful waters. 
They have forgotten that. And they have forgotten that the Lord was in the boat with them. The Lord has already demonstrated His absolute sufficiency and unrivaled sovereignty in any situation of life. And as long as Jesus is in your boat, even if it goes down, you go up. The Lord is in the boat with them. And they have forgotten that the Lord is at perfect peace at this moment. If Jesus was at rest, you should be at rest. You you just need to be what Jesus is. If Jesus is up in arms, you better get worked up. If Jesus is angry, you should be angry about what Jesus is angry about. If Jesus is sleeping, take a nap right next to him. (laughs) Jesus is at perfect peace. And better to be in a storm with Jesus than to be at calm without him. This is the storm. And storms reveal if we are actually living what we are learning. What are we learning? Number four, that Christ is our sovereign authority. I want you to see with me this. Mark wants us to see how Christ responded. And this is written to showcase the Savior. And this is written to put Jesus in the spotlight. And he arose. I want you to note that he always hears the cries of his people. I want you to note that Mark uses his favorite word again. And. It's just immediately. He's always attended to our cries. And he arose. And he rebuked the wind. Literally, he ordered the wind. And he said unto the sea, And Jesus now commands the elements, the very elements that he alone created. And the one he makes them is the one who commands them and controls them. The one who spoke them into existence is the one who can tell them to stop. Peace, be still. Literally, the the word and, by the way, is important here and we'll come to it. But literally in the Greek, the word peace, be still, that word literally means be muzzled. It's the idea as if an angry dog has been yelping and whelping and a muzzle is put under its mouth so now all it can do is whimper. Donald Barnhouse, uh, in his commentary, said you could interpret the words peace be still as back into your kennels. That's what he's saying. No more wind. No more wave. In a moment. And notice again the word that Mark loves. And. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. I want you to notice how quickly and how suddenly the elements obey the command of our sovereign Lord. The word and suggests that the first part and the last part are inseparably connected. In other words, when he said peace be still, immediately these things happened. And the wind ceased. The wind stopped immediately when Jesus spoke. It was blowing like a hurricane force wind with the pinpoint precision of a tornado, and it stopped. But now something else happened. And there was a great calm. Friend, waves don't do this. Water doesn't do this. Give your toddler a a bath sometime, right? And you can tell them to stop splashing, and they might, but it's going to take a while for the water to stop. Not so with our Lord. Sometimes we think that the the miracle was like that it immediately the wind stopped blowing, but it took a while for the water to ripple off. No, when he said, peace be still, the wind stopped and it was cool as glass across that sea. Do you think there is any prayer request 
that you would ever bring before this sovereign Lord that would be too difficult for him to handle? Do you think you will ever ask him for anything in his life that he does not merely have the power to say it's done and it will be done? Jesus is teaching his disciples something. He's teaching his disciples that he possesses all authority in heaven and earth and all authority is given him in heaven and earth and he will use that authority for the successful completion of his enterprise and his ministry and nothing, not even storms, will stop him. Not only can he still the storm on the outside, friend, he can still the storm on the inside. And the anxiety and restlessness and troubled soul can put faith and trust in a sovereign Lord no matter how great the storm. Your Lord is yet still greater and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind by in Christ Jesus. So friend... In your storm, where are you looking? Because Christ finally is our sole focus. And Jesus now turns his attention to his disciples once the storm has been quieted. And there is a certain responsibility about being in the boat with the Lord that they need to hear because to whom much is given, much is required. And when you are with the one And when you are with him, you receive great blessings of being in that boat. Praise the Lord, they're in that boat. But you are also subject to his rebukes. The closer you are to the Lord, the more the Lord requires. And those who have been entrusted with much had been exposed to so much gospel truth, they have a rebuke coming their way. It's not as though Christ calmed the storm and it's peaceful and then they all kind of gather together with one big hug and cry on each other's shoulders because they are alive. There's a rebuke coming. And sometimes in our haste to finish the story, we forget the rebuke and the rebuke is the point of the story. The rebuke is the point of the storm, I should say, because this isn't just some fairy tale. This happened. And he said unto them, how is it that you have no faith? After all, when you are with him, you receive the great blessings of having been in the boat with him. That's wonderful. But you are also subject to his rebukes. And he will rebuke them. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And the clear implication is that they have absolutely no reason to be afraid because of who he is, what he is, where he is, and how much they already know. Why are you so fearful? The word fearful here is a word that means cowardly fear. Why are you having an emotional meltdown? That's what he's saying. Why are you acting as if there is no God? I'm in the boat. Why is, you, why is there so much despair? The greatest danger was not, friend, the winds or the waves that threatened to drown them. The greatest Danger was the unbelief that was shrinking their hearts. How is it that you have no faith? There is such a higher expectation from what they have known to what they've now shown. Do you have no faith? Oh, they have saving faith, but they don't have storm faith. They are focused on the storm and not the sovereign in the boat. 
Their faith was weakened until it was wavering. They were acting in unbelief. They were not passing the test. They have taken their eyes off the Lord. They have corkscrewed down to the ground. They are being blown in all different directions. And friend, the storm either makes us or breaks us. As someone said, you will either become bitter or better. For them, this was exposing them. They weren't as tied down with the Lord as they thought perhaps they were. It just took a bump in the road to expose it. This is just notes on the paper you've been taking that hadn't gotten into their soul yet. Do you still have faith? The Lord expects faith. The Lord expects our trust to be in Him, and we don't have to explain all the origins of the storms of life. Ultimately, they come through the funnel of His sovereignty anyways. Read Job. They may come from secondary sources, as he is not in the, the cause of evil, but nevertheless, all storms come under the funnel of his sovereignty. Therefore, like Job, have faith. We should never be those who throw up our hands and collapse in the storm. But we see it, and I see it, when I go to hospitals. Quite frankly, I can tell for the most part who is walking with God as I walk those corridors. Those are the ones who have their feet on the ground. And you visit them and they're already in prayer. They've already got their Bible open. And they're the ones that are encouraging you, the visitor, not the other way around. They're the ones that have the spiritual lessons that they have been so entrenched in that in the difficulty of their hospital bed, they are all the closer to God, not farther away, And they're in their storm. Jesus is sleeping right next to them, and they're just perfectly at peace. But I see in the hospital many other types of responses that, quite frankly, if the Lord was in that hospital room, he would say something like this. Why are you so fearful? Don't you have faith? And that's a rebuke that should shake us to our boots. Did you see the real fear of this passage? Look at the real fear of this passage in verse 41. And they feared exceedingly. Yeah, the storm, the storm was fearful. Now they are fearing exceedingly. And said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were afraid of the storm, but now the Lord is opening up even further who he is. And the fear of the Lord terrifies them. There's one thing to be scared of the storm. It is something else to realize that God is in the boat with you. And that brings even greater awe and even greater reverence. That is totally different than what we read earlier. In fact, it's a totally different Greek word than the other fearful word we read earlier. Verse 41 says they became very afraid. That's a Greek word from which we get our idea of phobia. They were phobics now. They are so filled with reverential awe in their hearts that they realize that they are standing in the presence of the holy God and there's a bit of shame that they were afraid of the storm before and there's a bit of fear recognizing that the same God that could calm the storm could stop their breaths. Storms reveal what we are learning. 
There is not a casual worship service in this boat after the storm was there. I, I kind of hesitate to think that they got up and danced a little jig around their boat, or even when they got onto the shore thinking, we're alive, we're alive, we're alive. Praise God, we're alive. I think if they were singing anything, it was saying, God is God, I'm falling on my face. And as soon as they got to that shoreline, I just imagined that they were burying their faces in the sand at the feet of their master. This is not casual worship like we see in our churches so often. This is not emotional clamor to get a response at all. This is God. This is the lesson. This is his story, not mine. Yes, he's our servant, and, and absolutely he's our stability and, and our strength and our sovereign authority, but he is our sole and entire and complete focus. I want to suggest to you today that no matter how long you have known the Lord and no matter how long you have walked with the Lord, there is still this response in our hearts. What manner of man is this? I've not begun to scratch the surface of the infinite ocean of his majesty, his splendor, his awesomeness. What manner of man is this? He is the Lord of the storm. Many of you today find yourself in a storm. We're all either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or about to go into a storm. As a pastor, one thing that almost breaks my heart to reflect on, but I can honestly say, and if you give an assessment, you'd say the same, I believe that there are more deaths in my experience that take place around the holidays than almost any other time during the year. And the longer you're alive and the more of your friends and family members go home to glory before you, the harder those holidays are. And here we are on the verge of those holidays, and some of you are going to go right back into that storm. Even if that death was 5, 15 years ago, or just a few days ago, it's hard. What will you do? We are so easily shaken. We are so easily panicked. We are so often without faith, but the Lord has promised to get you to the other side. It may not be smooth sailing and it will not be an easy trip, but I promise you that the one who began a good work in you will see it to fruition. And we're just here for a little while. And eternity is forever. And the Lord is here with you now. He will be with you always. And praise God for the encouraging people who the Lord, who may be in the boat with you. Because all of these disciples are forever changed from this boat experience. I wonder if they had rallies around the storm. I wonder if the next time a storm cloud passed over Peter's home, he didn't just think a little bit about the lessons of the storm. I wonder if when John was on the Isle of Patmos all by himself and storms came up on the horizon, he just went and took a nap. Because he was a changed man from that storm. He had learned a lot of truth. He learned those in chapters 1, 2, and 3. As you explore the rest of the Gospel of Mark, you'll come to discover that there's not a whole lot of, we could say, new teaching from what Christ has already said. Christ has given the keys to the kingdom of heaven already. You, they know enough to believe. Now the question is, do you believe? What manner of man is this? 
There's not panic in heaven. Only plans. And Jesus is at peace. So rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the storms. Lord, there are many storms in life. There are many that may be in this room today that are going through a storm. There are many that may be not in a storm and have no idea that as they exit these doors, there's a storm headed towards them right on the horizon coming even this week. Lord, we praise you that you are with us in the storm. May we look to you. Lord, if there are any in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Savior, it would be our great desire to show them from God's Word how they can know for sure that Jesus is the Lord of their storms. We pray this in your name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand with me? The instruments are going to begin to play wonderful peace. Wonderful peace. I wonder if you would respond.